What's up, everyone? What's up, Climates? Welcome to Planet of the Climates. Planet of the Climates is a community-organized podcast bringing you the latest information and insight into the DAO ecosystem. Klima is a blockchain protocol backed by carbon credits that gives people a chance to fight climate change as a collective and get rewarded for doing so. Klima sits at the intersection of blockchain, climate action, and the carbon credit markets, so there's no shortage of great stuff to talk about. My name's Phaedrus. I'll be your host on this adventure. I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Reg. While Diamond Hand sends his regrets for today's episode, we do regularly talk about all the latest Klima news, give you some great alpha, and aim to connect you with the biggest and brightest minds exploring the space. Reg, today we're talking with Chad Frischman from Project Drawdown. Really excited to you know share that connection and share this knowledge that hopefully Chad's going to be able to deliver for us on this episode. But yeah, enough from us. Let's just flip to the conversation then. So Project Drawdown Senior Director and Lead Researcher Chad Frischman is our guest on this episode of the Planet of the Climates podcast. And I need to say that Personally, this is a very exciting conversation to have as I've been following Drawdown for several years now and also because I really hope Planet of the Climates can help share more of these conversations about the broader issues of climate science beyond DeFi and ReFi. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Chad. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will be eager to learn from you on the current state of climate science and solutions and just what Project Drawdown is, but perhaps uh, let's back things up by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your motivation for exploring climate solutions, and then maybe lead into how Drawdown came to be. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, having me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to talk to your audience about you know real uh, real actions that we can take starting today to you know help solve the climate emergency that we're in. But how did we get there? Um, it's a really good question. My background, most people think that I am an atmospheric physicist. They think that I'm a climate scientist because of the, the modeling system that I created with my team and architected to look at climate solutions. They, they often think that you have to come from a space of, of atmospheric science in order to, to build those kinds of models. And the reality is I, I'm not. I'm not an atmospheric physicist. I actually have a background that's very, very different. My background is in the nexus between sustainable development, environmental conservation, and local and indigenous people's rights and well-being. The thing is, when you're in that nexus of local and indigenous peoples and communities and conservation and development issues, these are really the frontline issues that are going to be most affected by a changing climate that are being affected today by a changing climate and more so in the future. And so when you're in that space, you have to think about what is going on with the climate and come up with solutions for both climate change mitigation and adaptation. And so that's the space that I, I was occupying as I came into Project Drawdown. And when I started Project Drawdown back in 2014, uh, you know, which was a, initially the brainchild of entrepreneur um, and author Paul Hawken. Um, and systems thinker um, and networker, Amanda Joy Ravenhill. And then when the three of us got together, we really thought to ourselves, um, how can we map, model, describe, communicate, and really engage the world on something that had never really been done before? 
solutions to to climate change, right? It's kind of like a duh, you know, like what in the world were we doing? We spent 25, 30, 40 years talking about the problem. And at the time in 2014, that's what had that's what was inundating this space. The the the, the description of the problem, the science behind the problem, which is absolutely fundamentally important. And we needed to establish that. But where were the solutions? And so that's where we set out with Project Drawdown initially was to, to, to come up with a list uh, of technologies and practices that already exist today. Nothing that needed to be invented. Nothing, no sort of futuristic fantasy solution that's going to come along the future, right? But something that really we knew work today. And what was the science, the data behind those solutions? And how can we bring those together and kind of map them as a system and see, is it even possible to reach that point in time called drawdown? I would love to have a little explanation of what that word means, drawdown. Then. Sure. So it's a it's a word that has you know lots of different meanings. But when we're thinking about climate change, it's really a point in time when atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases begin to decline on a year to year basis. Right. So that's that point in time when we're taking out more of those you know heat trapping gases than we're putting into the atmosphere to start with. And the proposition is pretty simple. If we can draw down carbon dioxide and prevent uh, more carbon dioxide, uh, methane, fluorinated gases, and nitrous oxide from coming into the atmosphere. If we can draw down those concentrations of gases, we can essentially stop global warming and begin the long process of reversing it. And that's where the book Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, originated. Excellent. Really appreciate you being here with us. And one of our goals is to educate our community, educate ourselves along the way, just from the basics. We know that the science has been there for decades now. And can you tell us about that? Tell us why why does greenhouse gas emissions cause problems for the globe? Yeah, sure. So there are certain gases that enter the atmosphere. They store and trap heat from being released out of the atmosphere. And what that has an effect of doing is increasing global temperatures. And these greenhouse gases come from just about everything we do as a species. Nearly every activity you can imagine produces greenhouse gases that you know have the effect of increasing global warming, increasing global temperatures, which have this knockoff effects on our climate, climatic systems, our ocean systems, terrestrial systems, biodiversity, and at the end of the day, human social and economic systems, right? So what we're doing is we're producing so much of these greenhouse gases from just about everything we do, from you know the electricity that's generated when we turn on our lights, right? From coal, oil, or gas-fired plants. You know, when we're turning on our furnaces to heat our homes, we're using combusting natural gas that enters the atmosphere after we combust it and causes that warming effect. So when we turn on our internal combustion engines where we, where we burn dug up dinosaurs, right, from point A to point B, or through jet fuel flying around the world, or all of the, all of the fuels, fossil fuels that are uh, uh, burned uh, and, uh, and combusted in factories to produce all of the stuff that we use on a day-to-day basis, the food that we consume every day. Uh, how we produce that food generates emissions from land use and land conversion. And in the process of agricultural production itself can produce more emissions. So just about like everything we do 
generates these heat trapping gases that cause global warming and ultimately change the, the, the impacts we're experiencing through from climate change due to from extreme weather events to biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, etc. So we're in a real crisis, a real planetary emergency at the moment. And it's hard to know what to do because it's everything that we do, all, all areas of economic activity are producing the very thing that's killing the planet. Hmm. And so, yeah, we're on average, I believe about 1.1 centimeter, uh, excuse me, degrees Celsius or so, which is about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than pre-industrial levels. And people talk about needing to limit this increase to not more than one and a half or two degrees Celsius. Can you give us any insight about that threshold and how rapidly do we need to change and modify our behaviors to achieve this goal? Yeah, I mean, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is you know the world authority on the impact of climate change and and, and understanding this issue, we need to we have a, a carbon budget. We're producing so many so much emissions every year. We have about till twenty thirty before we reach that budget where we get off the potential trajectory to get to those targets that we're aiming for. Now, these targets themselves are they're not precise, right? It's not if we if we reach one point five or two. 2.0 degrees Celsius, then we're saved versus total devastation and calamity. There's a lot of uncertainty built around these numbers. But what we can say is, generally speaking, we need to get onto that 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target as soon as possible. We have 10 years before we get off the, that trajectory. And we need to act now with as many solutions as possible to ensure that we stay on that trajectory and avoid tipping points or, you know, uh, these are other parts of the system that are going to, that respond to global warming and can have themselves have a, through feedback mechanisms, start to release more of these greenhouse gases if it's left unchecked. So we have to start, we have to do things now to avoid those tipping points, get on track to a 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius warming target and do that as quickly as possible. Right now, we're not there. We're far off the mark. And there's a lot of work to be done, but that's where Drawdown comes in because there are real solutions that are readily available that can solve that challenge, solve that problem that we're facing. Well, that's that's great. I was going to ask you a quick follow-up on that. The way, the way I think about this is it's a gradient. It's like a rolling cascade of events, perhaps worsting issues. It's not that you know global warming gets to a point and then all of a sudden there's a calamity. Is that is that a fair assessment? Exactly. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty built around this, and there's going to be extreme weather events along the way. It's already built into the system now, right? Because we've already emitted so much in the atmosphere. The concentrations of greenhouse gases are already leading towards e increased temperatures, and there's a time lag. So even if we stopped emissions today, there's still some built-in temperature change that we're going to experience it, and then the knockoff effects into our atmosphere our climate, our uh, terrestrial systems, ocean systems, et cetera. So we're still going to be feeling and experiencing some of the extreme adverse effects of climate change. And so it's really a matter of mitigating that, preventing the worst case scenario from happening by getting onto these trajectories. Now, when we actually thought about drawdown, we kind of thought, who really cares about a 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target, right? You know, it's that it's relatively meaningless to most people. Most people... That's like a target that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, doesn't really get people excited. And it's kind of a half measure, right? Because we need to do more than that. We need to be really reaching a point of reducing the sources of emissions 
to zero, enhancing the sinks, the natural sinks of our planet to their maximum capacity and fundamentally changing society to address this challenge as quickly, safely, and equitably as possible, regardless of whether we're on a one, two degree Celsius warming target, a 1.5 degree Celsius warming target, or hey, let's even go beyond that, right? Let's go as fa- far and fast as we possibly can, because these are the solutions that can not only solve the climate emergency that we're in, but so many other cascading benefits to human and planetary well-being. So it doesn't even make sense to you know, limit our thinking to just attaining the one target. We need to think beyond that to be a more ambitious, more inspiring future that we actually want and you know, walk the pathway towards that future as fast as we can. And along the way, reach the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target and go beyond. Wow, that, that's excellent. I think you've really yeah, illustrated the urgency and the you know, some of the complexity involved in what's going on there too. And especially when you're talking about kind of there's other reasons to want to do these things beyond just hitting this magical number. That really resonated with me from your your TED talk, which I'm sure we'll link to in the show notes there. But beyond, you know, the the climate science, the current situation that you've described there, or you know, maybe the, you know, the bad news that you've illustrated too. Could you maybe, you know, walk us through your actual drawdown framework or this methodology that you develop? And in our our blockchain world or the DeFi world, we like the acronym ELI5, which is saying, explain it like I'm five. (laughs) So could you lay it on us like we're five-year-olds and talk about those sources versus sinks or whatever else you'd like to illustrate? Yeah. So, you know, like I was saying before, greenhouse gases are emitted from nearly everything we do as a species, right? So all those different areas of economic activity that we take for granted on a day-to-day basis, because that's how we live in modern society and contemporary society. And all of those are sources of greenhouse gases entering the atmosphere. There's a whole wealth of opportunities there to reduce those sources as much as possible to the point of, you know, to zero, right? Why are we emitting or burning or consuming dead dinosaurs, essentially, and and, and biomass and emitting this into the atmosphere when there are readily available technologies and practices that already exist that can replace those technologies that are contributing to the problem with those alternatives? So we need to limit the sources of those uh, emissions to zero. Now, I referred to this uh, earlier as well. The, the one good thing, the one, the one positive thing that happens every year is something called photosynthesis. It's the magic and the miracle of photo. And it's, a, it's really a miraculous process, right? Plants pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it safely in Earth's soil organic carbon and are both our terrestrial and ocean systems and aqueous carbon as well as terrestrial carbon. And this happens every year. The problem is, is that these ecosystems have limited capacity to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. About 59% of all that we put into the atmosphere stays there, right? And and so that's really what the fundamental problem is that's causing global warming is the 59% of greenhouse gases that stay in the atmosphere. Now, I also want to point out, and this is referring a little bit earlier to your question of what the problem is, each of those gases have different global warming potentials in the atmosphere. What that means is how long they stay in the atmosphere and how good they are at trapping heat. So different gases have different lifetimes and different capacities to trap heat. You know, for example, methane is a short-lived gas and has a huge global warming impact in the short term, you know, 20 years or less, compared to say carbon dioxide, which we measure at a hundred year time scale. So the different 
types of gases and concentration that stay in the atmosphere at different times, you know, remain there. So the more we put up of these gases, the more that's going to be a long-term detriment to the planet. If we're 59% of what we put up there stays there, right? So the other part of the equation, so there's the sources or what are the solutions that reduce emissions to zero? The other part is the sinks. So how do we enhance the sinks? You know, part of the challenge is that our ecosystems are being degraded at an alarming rate. Principally, principal driver is for food, right? For agricultural production. So through the degradation of our ecosystems, we're not only emitting more from those ecosystems, so they used to be storehouses of carbon, and now we emit them as we degrade them, but we also limit their capacity to continue to sequester carbon to act as that natural sink. So what are the natural climate solutions that we could be supporting and enhancing that improves the capacity of, to sequester carbon, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, while at the same time reducing those sources to zero? And that's really sort of that net equation, right? If we're not emitting any more emissions and our natural ecosystems are at their full capacity to pull out what's already there. And of course, there is a role for engineered sinks, things like direct air capture, for example, that can, or technology that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and store it safely. Not economically viable today, but very important in the future. When we get there, that's the equation that gets to drawdown. That's where we can actually have that a net effect of reducing those concentrations of greenhouse gases. When we get to zero, and when we enhance the sinks. Okay. Okay. Tons there to unpack. And I, I just, yeah, so much that you're uh, explaining there is really helpful. I've, I've just actually right in front of me have the framework and I'm, we're definitely going to be linking to that. I'm just wondering, could you explain perhaps, I know with these solutions or the, the sinks or the changes that could be made in the framework, you have kind of like a minimum and a maximum, or in my mind, it feels kind of like you know, the IPCC pathways or whatever, like, are there kind of different avenues that you're exploring, like, depending on how much effort we put into these solutions or? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, those aren't, those aren't minimums or maximums, actually, those are two different scenarios that we evaluate at Drawdown. So we look, first of all, you know, we do a landscape evaluation of all the potential technology and practices that we know of that have uh, certain characteristics. They're scientifically valid, which means there's enough data out there to support technologies or practices in their climate impacts. They're financially or economically viable within the time of the study, that they are currently scaling and that they have more positive externalities than negative, or they have more benefits than trade-offs, right? So the, the technologies that we look at have to fit that criteria. And once we do that, we gather and aggregate humanity's brilliance. We aggregate he, the, the data from peer-reviewed, widely cited sources in a meta-analysis. So doing as much data collection as we can. And from that, we model out what the potential growth of these solutions could be. Again, using already existing peer-reviewed data and widely cited sources. And that's a really important distinction. We collect and gather what other organizations, other academics are already doing to evaluate a range of possible futures. And from that, we determine and design a two different scenarios. One we call a plausible scenario. And this is uh, optimistic. Yes, it is certainly ambitious, it's optimistic, but it's very, very possible. The second we call an ambitious scenario. 
Now that's at the high end of ambition. It's real, it's harder to achieve for sure. It requires full scale planetary action. It requires all solutions to be done in parallel and it's quite a bit more ambitious. And actually we have a third scenario that we haven't really released yet. It's going to be a, a future paper of ours that we're, we're, we're preparing this month actually, what we call the maximum scenario. And that's like if we pull all levers to the maximum to really try to get rid of all of those technologies and practices that are contributing to the problem, all those bad acting technologies, and switch them over to solutions as fast as possible. That's, that's what we call the maximum. But the number that you see there on our, on our site and that we, in, our, in our published materials, those that represent the plausible and then the ambitious scenario. The plausible turns out to be aligned with a two degree Celsius warming target. Scenario two is aligned with the 1.5 degree Celsius warming target. So when you look at those numbers, those are the gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent for every solution and then in total that needs to be needs to be either reduced and or sequestered over the 30-year time frame to get to a two degree Celsius target. And then the other number, the more ambitious and the bigger number, that represents what we need to do to get to the 1.5 degree target. Okay, sorry, I just want to one thing I don't know if I understood from what you just said that last little bit there. So are you saying is it the sum of all of your solutions right now and the sum of all those reductions that would let us hit the 1.5? Or is it that one individual solution would let us hit 1.5 or two? Thank you so much for asking that question. Nobody asked me that question. And it's so important because a lot of people think then what we're doing with all this list of solutions is that we're doing, we're, we're evaluating them in isolation. And we're not. This is actually a fully integrated system. So every solution you see there is being adopted in parallel with every other solution. And we deal with system dynamics and interaction effects, stock and flow issues, right? So how much dedicated biomass from our agricultural solutions is available for bioplastics or, you know, for uh, reducing our food waste. What's, what are the interactions across the entire system? So when you see each of those individual solution numbers, that's just their part, their role that they play in the 1.5 degree Celsius, the in scenario two, in the ambitious scenario to get to a 1.5 degree target, right? But you need them all. There, you need every one of those solutions, all those numbers in total to get to our targets that we need to achieve drawdown. Okay, excellent, excellent. That was uh, really glad to hear that clarification there too. And I think just for you know, so many of our audience or just myself or just everyday people, it feels like we're thinking, you know, what's the number one thing I can do? Or they want to just jump to the number one thing on that list. But obviously your top 100 now is a more comprehensive picture. It's about more than just one thing. Um, I'm, I'm curious, obviously you're very familiar with that list there. Is there anything, you know, that is a sink or a source, I guess, that are on, in terms of your solutions that you think was the most surprising perhaps? Mm, that's a good question. I think a lot of people ask me that what's the most surprising solution. What's your favorite solution. And I think for me, what was really surprising was, I guess that you I guess it was kind of related to what I just was talking about earlier was, was that you can't do it with the top 10, the top 20, the top 25, top 30. You can't do it. We can't solve the climate emergency. We can't get on to that 1.5 degree target with just the top 30 solutions. That was, that was like surprising to me. I really thought like, you know, oh, sure, there must be the top 10. That, and if we really, really push these solutions, we're going to get there. Now, if we get solar to 100% and solar went 100% and we do this, this, we can do that. What was surprising is you can't. 
You can't. You have to really address all 80. And in fact, we're about to have a whole new set of solutions that we're going to be releasing next month. You know, so there's 15 new solutions in the list. And there are so many more out there in the world, but we need them all. We need all of them to get to these targets as soon as possible. And that wasn't really surprising. I really thought there was going to be like a top 10 that are going to really get us, do everything that we really need. But I'm actually was happy to see that you need all of them because when you look at the system of solutions, you look at all the different solutions across all the different, those areas of economic activity, they link to other goals. They're the same kind, they're the same solutions that help address the sustainable development goals. But we can achieve other global targets while we are implementing this uh, system of solutions by allowing for and really understanding that we need all the solutions to address climate. And they address so many other things along the way as well. And that was really exciting for me to see. You need really fundamental system change. You ha- we have to change the system from extraction and exploitation to a new system of restoration and regeneration, where we're creating a system of abundance that then then has all of these cascading benefits that help us solve the sustainable development goals and go beyond, right? And for those of you listeners who don't know what the sustainable development goals are, these are the goals set by the United Nations to create a sustainable planet uh, with prosperity, peace, and well-being for all people at the heart of what they do. So these are things like eliminating poverty and hunger, improved health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, inclusive green economic growth, clean water and sanitation, and, and protecting our marine and terrestrial ecosystems. These are what we need for a sustainable planet and for it to be a sustainable species. And they happen to also, like the, the solutions that we profile to solve for climate, because they address everything in the system, happened if they're done right can also um, help us achieve our other goals. And so that was really exciting for me to see as well. Interesting. You know, in the, in the cryptocurrency world, we talk about public goods. We talk about these, what we call coordination layers or global coordination, facilitating coordination between people of diverse backgrounds and diverse geog- geographic locations. And it seems to me looking at this list, it's it's really fantastic how granular it is, how specific, how, you know, how it all just kind of makes sense as these are all important parts of a solution. My question is, how do you approach the coordination? Because this is the solutions here span, you know, socioeconomic statuses, they span geographic locations, educational levels, et cetera. How do we get to the point where we kind of just all come together and say, okay, this is the framework and we coordinate everybody to start working towards these goals? I think what's really key is creating this as a public good. Right. I mean, unleashing the knowledge of what is possible when we work together and doing so in a free open source environment so that everybody can have access to it. One of the big challenges to implementation today are information barriers, knowledge barriers, silos that are operating without talking to each other. And so one of the things we are engendering to do and we have done is we want to be releasing all of our work in a free and open source repository so that everyone can access this and use it in their own decision-making to, to help accelerate solutions. I think one thing is really important to, to coordinate and is ensuring that the knowledge and information is free, open, and easily accessible, usable, 
and ultimately meaningful to people. And I think that's the other point. Like we have, it has to be meaningful to people. So how do we get people coordinated? How do we get people taking action? Part of it is inspiring them to, to know what is possible. And to changing mindsets to see the future and envision the future that they want and start walking in that direction with knowledge that is freely accessible. That's an aggregated pool of knowledge from humanity's most brilliant minds, right? And people working in the field. And to be able to move forward step by step on that pathway to what they're envisioning, grounded in science, grounded in data, but in ways that's actually usable and meaningful to them. And a lot of people ask me, like, what do I do? And I say, well, first, Look at what you're already doing, right? Because many people don't even know some of the actions that they're taking are solutions, that they are part of the equation to get us towards the fu- that future that we want, right? They don't know that because there's so many knowledge barriers preventing them from linking what they do in life to climate. So when you break down those barriers and they start to realize, oh, wow, I'm actually doing something, whether that's you know, reducing my meat consumption, adopting more of a plant-rich diet. Maybe you started doing this because of many other reasons for the environment or for animal rights or any number of other reasons. It is also a major, one of the most important climate solutions, right? So you're already doing that. So if you're taking your first step, honoring, respecting, and owning what you're already doing, it doesn't feel so overwhelming. You can take the next step and the next step. So I encourage people to see this system of solutions as like a choose your own adventure book. You know, do you remember those, those old days where you'd open the book and, you know, you say, Oh, this, and then what, what do I choose? Oh, I'm going to go do this. And you do that. And to go on this journey together with joy and that sense of adventure that we're going to build this together, this future that we want and do so with what you can do. You know, you can't do everything. You can't do everything tomorrow, but if you start doing things and start owning and respecting and honoring the steps that you're taking, you're going to start looking to your left and right. You're going to see more and more people are also doing the same. So you start to link arms and community walking on that pathway. And then you you get, you know, momentum starts to build coordination. That's not our role at project Drawdown to coordinate the world, nor can we have a central body coordinating. I think we have to unleash this out to the world and have real system change by changing mindsets, honoring what people are doing, and working collaboratively together. And that's really the only way I think we're going to do this. One thought, I, when I'm just reflecting on my you know, medical background in terms of quality improvement. I sit on uh, committees that you know, we look at medical errors and try and do a root cause analysis and uh, establish uh, you know, systems that will prevent those from occurring in the future. And um, one, of, uh, one of the things that I remember early in my career we had this case and I said, well, why don't, you know, this is kind of a basic thing. Like, why don't we just teach people to do it this way instead? And they said, you know, it just doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, you have to kind of create these frameworks to modify people's behavior in a way that's almost subconscious. And so the way I want to link this to this conversation is through carbon markets and thinking about ways to incentivize people. Because as the old saying goes, money talks. And if you can change the economics of pollution, perhaps then that permeates this whole, all, all of these solutions that you're so eloquently describe and incentivize them for a more rapid adoption. What are your thoughts on the voluntary carbon market or even the compliance carbon market? How do you see that fitting in here? Well, I think it's, as, as you correctly point out, I mean, creating the right financial mechanisms, the right incentives for businesses, for 
consumers to be making the right decisions is really potentially powerful. And if there was a really strong, viable carbon market that could appropriately price carbon, right? And that's part of the big challenge with the market is it's hard to know where to price it accordingly that actually does justice to the many negative externalities of business as usual, right? If we start to internalize all those costs, the, 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 the cost of carbon, or, or, and it's really not just the cost of carbon, we have to remember it's the cost of greenhouse gases. You know, the carbon market's like a shortened version of that, but you know, really looking at the whole, the, all the greenhouse gases, looking at all the solutions, obviously. But I think it's a really important financial mechanism that could work really well, but only if greenhouse gases are priced appropriately. If we're really internalizing those costs and doing so in a robust way that is can be verified and validated, which may be a really uh, interesting role for the in the crypto world, of course. And I talked to a lot of folk over the years about how to use some of the principles of the crypto world to validate and verify these appropriate pricing mechanisms. But I think there's a long way to go. You know, you're, we're not seeing greenhouse gases priced accordingly, and it's hard to imagine uh, future soon where that's going to be the case, where we can really accelerate the solutions. So I think there's a role to play, but I think there's a lot of different tools in our tool belt that need to be used. Carbon taxes, carbon markets, media campaigns. You know, someone asked me, what would I do with a, a billion dollars? I'd say, first of all, I'd ask for two of it. One, one, <laughs> one billion I would want to spend on really creating a new knowledge system, you know, for a solutions-oriented knowledge system with the principles of, you know, that free and open source repository and public good. So the second, you know, would be to have a billion dollar media campaign. We can get the the best PR firms and media firms and, and really shifting advertisement away from continuing to support the problem to uh, a billion dollar ad, advertise, global advertising campaign to, the, to really focus on all of the different solutions. I think that's going to be hugely impactful too, because it's about changing mindsets. And yeah, I mean, carbon markets are going to do it, but we need to normalize these solutions. We need to see them as there's no other alternative. It's like, it's that duh factor that I was talking about earlier. You know, you have to think about how many ahas or how much like how many clicks in people's brains where they say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're saving the planet from global warming. Oh yeah. There's a financial return on that. Oh, Wow. And, oh, we're, we're helping to save biodiversity. We're reducing us in ocean acidification. Oh, we're improving uh, human well-being. Oh, we're improving health outcomes. Oh, and there's enough aha, aha, ahas where it just becomes duh. And you can't think about things differently anymore. And that's not just about creating financial mechanisms in the market. It's about really fundamentally changing people's vision of what is possible, what's there, and what what they can actually do, and I think that's actually really possible, and we've seen it done in the past. Um, but we're not putting enough funds, enough resources to changing the zeitgeist, changing those cultural norms to not see anything other than solutions in our world, and that's where we should be. Right. Perhaps by the end of this conversation, we can get you to add another solution onto your list, and that, and that being our crypto protocol, Klimadao. And what we're trying to do is build a community around climate action of like-minded folks and expand the tent. But the principal idea in a nutshell is that we incentivize the onboarding of carbon credits onto the blockchain to facilitate this future carbon market. 
we think we can increase the efficiency and the and the accessibility of the carbon market greatly from where it is currently and allow people to offset their carbon footprints in a transparent fashion by doing so. And, and the interesting thing for me is that we have 60,000 people already participating. And in the first three or four months, we have uh, just over 16 million tons of tokenized carbon offsets in our treasury now. And so it kind of really like there's a this pent up demand that we're seeing in our community for wanting to do something and feeling like, you know, this is an opportunity for the common person who doesn't have regenerative finance or real world sort of climate action credentials, you know, in their history to do something. And so I think there is a lot of, if you were to achieve that media campaign, you would unlock a lot of people who would now say, wow, okay, yeah, I want, I know I have to do something, but I don't know what to do and are willing to perhaps make some small sacrifices or change their behavior, not even potentially even make sacrifices to, to help achieve our goals. So, I mean, from our standpoint, we're, we're approaching it from the financial side of things, trying to increase the value, as you mentioned, increase the value of these carbon offset or carbon mitigation to change the economics so that, you know, just a, an example we use is for, instead of burning down rainforest in the Amazon for $500 a hectare and then converting it to soy farming or cattle farming, instead of that, sell it to us and we'll farm carbon credits from the rainforest, right? And that becomes economically viable when you increase the value of these in the real world. So that's kind of our core mission is to do that. What, what are your thoughts on hearing that? I'm not sure how much, uh, how much background you have in, in, in crypto, but it, does that sound like something that may be a part of this big picture? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's a really it's really cool. I'm actually am an advisor to a, a DAO called Diatom, which I encourage you to look to, and I'm happy to make some connection to you for you all and any of the listeners. It's a DAO for ocean protection, and it's basically the first tokenized plastic removal credit. I want to say it launched. It launched recently. I'll just say that recently. Recently, yeah. The Phaedrus, I think you're involved in that too, right? In a, yeah, it's definitely community. on the radar. It's it's pretty cool that yeah, it, yeah, just seeing different solutions emerge here. Yeah, different kinds of solutions, and I think my role in, in that is is looking at these ocean solutions that have again these multiple benefits. So looking at, you know, protecting ocean infrastructure, removing plastics. But the idea of diatom is going beyond that, of course. So there's a good sort of, there's a lot of folks in the space, like really wanting to, you know, use their superpowers to help the planet. They just don't know how. And so this is the things like Klima and diatom are, are really important steps to activating a really powerful, brilliant, smart community that share a lot of the principles that, for example, those of us in the climate world are always espousing around, you know, distributed networks, public goods, really trying to activate a large community to really shift systems, I think. And so I think there's a lot of alignment. And yeah, I think it's a great idea to be further activating more of these communities out there to help with advancing solutions for climate, for our oceans, for biodiversity. And I think it'd be cool to see how these all can be interlinked right you know i always like to say an alliance of DAOs coming in to be about like let's let's solve all of the world's challenges and find because people are going to find their own you know going to become more activated in in different different issue areas that are relevant to them but if you can interlink them and show how when you're working on one thing they actually have these other benefits to this other issue and it's all working towards a better system i think that's going to be really powerful yeah, it's a very democratic way of doing things too. And 
and it doesn't have to be like I think part of the attraction here is that people don't necessarily think the government is going to save them. And I mean that in a way that just the government has so many things on their plate and so many challenges that people want to be able to exert some influence on these issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's buying a sports team, you know, as a Dow or buying the constitution, whatever it is, right? But like people want to have that sense of community and exerting a, a real world influence. I think the regenerative finance space in terms of cryptocurrency perhaps has the distinction of being the first subsect of crypto that's really exerting a real world impact, I think. And it really kind of is a, I think it makes me proud to be part of the space because crypto sometimes gets a bit of a bad name out there in, in the common world. But here we are, we're showing them, hey, this is our priority. We think climate action is a huge priority right now. And that's where we're focusing our attention and our resources. So I think we're quite excited for the future and to continue growing. We're definitely going to have to get you into the Klima Discord and, and get you involved in our organization too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to help wherever I can, wherever I'm called to. And that's it. I think we all need to find what's calling us to take action. And if we can, you know, envision that future together, right? Because ultimately we need to do that. We can't follow one person's plan. Like when I came up with the Drawdown Solutions framework, great. There are so many other frameworks out there. It's not about saying this is the one framework that's going to rule them all. Um, <laughs> but it's about how the different frameworks can also be interoperable, right? It's seeing in like how, how we enter into the space of action because we know we need to take, we, need, we know we need to do something, right? We know we need to do something. We're in a climate emergency. There's no question about that right now. We're in a planetary emergency yeah. when we go beyond climate and think about uh, biodiversity collapse impending war right we're seeing war even today and we're all distracted what's happening in ukraine but you know if we don't do something about the climate and we see biodiversity collapse we're looking at a dystopian future that nobody wants to imagine right so we know we have to do something people are very become very aware about that and how you take action is about what's calling you what framework you're going to follow but ensuring that these frameworks are sharing knowledge are interoperable, using common data sources, sharing data, sharing learning, and trying to advance towards that future together in collaboration, linking arms, that's what we need. And I think the crypto world, you know, has some problems, of course, right? I mean, as, in, as you know, high energy consumers, right? And, you know, and so it's, you know, emitting it, it, a lot, there's, there's, there's something to be said there. Um, but there's also an opportunity when you know, in, in, you know, um, you know, when we start adopting more solutions um, to say, say energy generation, electricity generation, and, and so on, you know, there is something there, there is a there there um, in activating the crypto world to um, engage in a variety of different frameworks that appeal to yeah. them. And, and really, the, the vast majority of the blockchains are going to low low energy systems. The one we're on, Polygon, is has a very low footprint. But Ethereum in the not too distant future should reduce by ninety nine point nine percent. But yeah, I think that getting the word out that you know we're trying to do good, a public good, and I think the future is bright in a good way, not in a hot way. I guess would be a good way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, that's great. That's actually a little bit of a you know 
uh, unexpected surprise there too to hear your connection with the you know refi defi and the dow world already too so that's that's excellent totally did not expect that added bonus <laughs> yeah just to bring things you know back to drawdown as well perhaps too looking around the corner here you did tip us off a little bit earlier and as our other co-host who's not here today uh, diamond hands would be keen to hear the alpha it sounds like you've got 15 more solutions coming up around the corner are you able to like give us a hint or tease what some of those might be or is there any other you know climate science or solutions that have just emerged that are interesting to you yeah no i'm happy to give you all a, a sneak peek i mean We've expanded the system to incorporate a lot of different ocean solutions. Um, so there's quite a few new solutions that address ecos uh, marine uh, ecosystem protection or restoration, and also things like seaweed farming. It's an amazing solution for lots of different reasons. Not only does farming seaweed help act as a sink, so we can pull carbon out and part of it gets stored as a sink, but when you cultivate that seaweed, you can replace materials and commodities that are grown on terrestrial systems with seaweed, seaweed for human consumption, for livestock consumption, or for dedicated biomass to be used for materials or for biofuels, it can be grown from ocean ecosystems. So not only can it act as a sequester, part, part of it gets sequestered in the ocean, and part of it actually uh, replaces the overuse of our terrestrial system, which is a huge emitter of carbon dioxide. And as we see economies grow, we see further development and population increases, we're going to expect to see more land change, more land degradation to give way to, you know, producing food and commodities and, and these materials. If we can grow them in the ocean in a sustainable way, you take those feedstocks off of the land, allowing that land to now be free to be preserved, protected or restored etc. And, and so that has a huge impact right there. I mean, just imagine like the win-wins there. You, you know, you're sequestering, improving sinks, you're avoiding emissions, and you're you know, creating a new healthy commodity into our food systems. It's a great solution. So ocean solutions are really, really important. Another three solutions are in specifically addressing methane, avoiding methane. And that's both you know, partially in agricultural production, things like livestock, feed improvements and management of manure. Actually, managing manure <laughs> produces a lot of emissions, but if you manage it in an appropriate way, it actually can dramatically reduce the amount of methane entering the atmosphere. Uh, or, or something as simple as avoiding methane leaks in the uh, gas industry, right? And in the natural gas or methane network of pipelines that distribute methane all over the country, distributing methane for combustion, are leaking methane at an alarming rate. And that's one of the cheapest solutions you can do. It's actually pretty darn affordable to identify those, those methane leaks and to seal them off and improve your, your pipelines to avoid that methane ever entering the atmosphere to start with. Of course, that's not really a solution because we need to get away from methane combustion for energy generation to start with, but it's kind of like a transition uh, to, a, a transition challenge and facing us, right? How do we prevent methane that's in the system from being leaked uh, gas pipelines while they're still in operation, while at the same time phasing out methane gas as a energy generation technology in the future? Oh, that's, that's awesome. And I think I, I mean, I've got to 
gas stovetop here. And I did just realize over the last few weeks, I mean, <laughs> you know, should have known a lot longer too, but just, yeah, there's m major methane emissions just coming, even when the stove is not on, right? Yeah, to a certain, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. And when you turn the stove on, you're, you're combusting methane. And, but what you're doing when you do that, you're still releasing carbon dioxide when you burn methane. So even flaring methane is not a solution really. It can be if it's done in sort of like uh, in um, uh, to produce electricity. Um, so our solutions like anaerobic digesters or so, which are methane digesters um, or biogas digesters can, you know, you flare, you burn off methane and use it to produce um, electricity. And it actually can be a solution if it's coupled and the, the, the functions are stacked. If we're thinking about solutions that have multiple functions, we can reduce the amount of methane entering the atmosphere. And yes, there's going to be some carbon dioxide emissions, but it's way better to do that than it is to be digging up methane <laughs> um, or, or from fracking or from burning of coal. Uh, to generate electricity, it's much cleaner to do that using organic materials and capturing methane that would be entering the atmosphere from decomposition. So they, they, it's, it's all it's interesting how you can think about solutions and and you know how best to stack those functions to get the most out of it. And I think yeah, your gas stove, you know, I, I recommend moving to electric. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely something yeah. that yeah, it was a little bit of an eye opener for me to realize that there too. The issue goes beyond just the you know the natural gas itself necessarily. Or anyways, it's you know even when you think you're not using it, you are <laughs> you're emitting. But right. yeah, again, thanks for those sneak peeks in terms of what could be hit your list in the near future. But I guess yeah, just just broadly speaking, then uh, around the corner, would you have anything else that you'd like to talk about in terms of where Drawdown might be headed? You know, beyond those additions to the list. Yeah. And so, so Project Drawdown is, you know, we're a living research communications and engagement project, right? So we're never done with understanding what are the solutions. This is an ongoing process. And there are a lot more work that we need to be doing and not only looking at the global scale, but looking at more and more and local contextual scales as well. You know, when we started Drawdown, I had this like debate, you know, do I want to focus on the global systems model or do I want to focus on a way to, you know, really identify local action and we we determined we finally like look at the end of the day climate change is a global issue you know the atmosphere it's a global it ultimately is you know a global measuring concentration it needs to be done at the global scale so we first developed this idea of you know what would be possible if we were to implement these solutions at global scale over time could we even do this could we even is it even possible so to, to create that sense of possibility but even from those earliest of days, we designed the models to also be parameterized and contextualized so that we could look at any scale. We could look at country scale, we could local scale, community scale. We could look at corporate supply chains, investment portfolios, et cetera. And we're not there yet because we're still like we're still do doing so much work at the global scale. But I think in the direction moving forward, we're going to do more and more work in thinking about you know different scales and how to activate. What are the solution sets? Is most relevant for you know a, a rural village in India compared to New York City. Those are going to be very different types of you know sets of portfolios of solutions that are going to be act that would be relevant to that 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 bioregion, that socioeconomic, their bioregions or their you know uh, their political systems or their economic uh, development. That's going to be very different in those different parts of the world. 
and so the more we understand what are the solutions that are relevant at those scales, the more we can actually empower and enable those uh, communities to take action. So I think that's a, that's a direction that we really want to be going more and more towards. Oh, that that's awesome to hear that that vision for where you're headed there too. That's just been yeah, excellent to hear. And this this whole conversation has been just brilliant too. Yeah, so thank you very much for your time. I think we've kind of hit on our core questions that we were hoping to hit you up with. Is there anything else that you just, you know, that you want to get across that we didn't ask about? No, I think this is great. I think, again, I just encourage everybody to not feel overwhelmed, not feel overwhelmed about doing everything because we can't do everything individually. But choose your own adventure. Find this, the pathway through these solutions that make sense for you and do so with joy and adventure. And, and you know, again, as I said, look around and see who else is doing it. And, and you start to do it together and it becomes more and more enjoyable to do good for the planet and for people and future generations. So, you know, don't feel overwhelmed. Just, you know, walk on your pathway and do the best that you can. Mm -hmm. One step at a time. That's beautiful. And your, you know, your framework and the list of solutions there are definitely an inspiration and they're an incredible, you know, menu for us to pick from individually and hopefully uh, all tackle them together collectively. Great. Well, thank you all so much. I'm glad that we can get this done. And yeah, there may be other opportunities to do other, you know, projects in the future and, you know, come back and talk about those as well. So, well, brilliant. Thanks so much, Chad. Take care. Thank Thank you you very much. Uh, What a great conversation. It was honestly just so great to meet Chad Frischman and learn more about the backstory and that long-term mission and vision of Project Drawdown. He's, of course, the, the founder of that framework, that list of solutions that we'll have links to in the show notes for sure. And I don't know about you, Reg, but for me, I think the the biggest thing too was just this idea that it's not, again, it's obviously not just about one solution, which I think is a trap that many of us get pulled into just like wondering what that solution is. But this idea that, you know, the solutions can kind of build on each other and they can have cascading secondary benefits as well, too. So if just at the end there, too, where he was talking about growing kelp or plankton and all that, and that can just have all these other knock on benefits for, you know, the food supply chain and it's sequestering carbon and it's it's not just a unidimensional solution. So uh, that was just really inspiring and gave me a fresh dose of optimism there. So I really enjoyed that. How about for yourself? I agree. Yeah, it was. it's really exciting to learn these things. Um, from the earliest kind of ideation phase of Planet of the Climates, we talked about connecting our community with uh, educational resources and people who could tell them, kind of teach about climate science. And so this is really important step for us to bring in a very notable person in the climate action space. You know, I think this is an important connection to make and um, I'll be looking forward to seeing him even perhaps take a role in in Klima in terms of advising and uh, connecting us with other traditional uh, actors in the space who can uh, amplify our mission. So um, I thought it was was very educational for me. Uh, I think our listeners will agree, hopefully, and uh, definitely check out the linked resources, see, kind of get a visual of what we were looking at in terms of their uh, website resources for their solutions. So 
Yeah, yeah. I think that the framework and that table of solutions on the drawdown site are just so educational and informative. And it was definitely a yeah a big surprise to realize you know that uh, Chad is already kind of uh, venturing into the DeFi refi space there too. That was yeah unexpected, and I think. Uh, it'd be great whether it's Chad or whoever else too. We just, yeah, it's awesome to connect with that science community so that we know that what we're talking about in terms of the impact that Clean is having in terms of our treasury and the, the impact we're having on carbon markets and those trickle down effects, that they actually are having an impact and where they can have an impact too in the scale of things. And of course, we were, you know, we were missing our good friend Diamond Hands there. Hopefully we did you justice there, Diamond Hands. We did dig around for some alpha and we learned that there's going to be 15 new solutions added to that list. So that's uh, that's the scoop that we're able to deliver for you today, folks. And we've proposed a 16th solution, our very own Klima That's right. That's right. The table is going to need an asterisk at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. As always, for everything Klima, make sure you're hitting up klimadao.finance, our shiny new website where you can stake bond and of course, most importantly, find that link to the Klima Discord community because we're a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. We are very much community driven, just like this very podcast. So join us and you're going to find a great group of climates in the Discord server and plenty of opportunities to contribute and be an active climate too. So we hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Chad and thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to saying hello once again on the next planet of the climates.